Welcome to The Hub Dialogues, a podcast that celebrates big thinkers and bold ideas about a better future for all of us. I'm Rudyard Griffiths, the Executive Director of The Hub, Canada's leading source for analysis and insights on public policy. Our goal at The Hub is to escape the opinion bubbles of conventional conversation and prod our popular discourse back to the issues and ideas that matter, that can shape our collective future. On The Hub Dialogues, you'll hear Sean Spear, our editor-at-large, in conversation with some of the world's sharpest minds and brightest thinkers about the issues and ideas they're passionate about and that they think we should spend more time focusing on. The next voice you'll hear is that of Sean Spear in conversation with our guest. Enjoy this Hub Dialogue. Welcome to Hub Dialogues. I'm your host, Sean Spear, editor-at-large at The Hub. I'm honored to be joined today by Jeremy Peters, who's a national political reporter for The New York Times and a regular MSNBC contributor. He's also the author of the new book, Insurgency, How Republicans Lost Their Party and Got Everything They Ever Wanted. I'm grateful to be able to speak to Jeremy about the book's insights and ideas. Thanks for joining us, and congratulations on the book's release. Thank you very much for having me. I appreciate it. Jeremy, populism has long been part of the modern Republican coalition. I think, for instance, of Bill Buckley's famous line about being governed by the first 2,000 names in the Boston Telephone book rather than 2,000 Harvard faculty members. But as you document in the book, something seems different in the past decade or so. What do you attribute the relative rise of populism on the American right to over this period? So I would actually take issue with the accuracy of Bill Buckley's famous statement, because I don't think it actually really represented who was running the Republican Party uh, for the last generation or so. I mean, the Republican Party has been run by elites. Bill Buckley himself was about as elite as you could get uh, in, in terms of his pedigree. And what you had was uh, instead of a party run by the average person, um, so to speak, you had a party that was run by the Bushes. Um, and, and the Bushes are, are one of the most classic blue-blooded American families in, in American politics. Um, you have Mitt Romney, um, people like that, who were really not populists at all. And the surge in populism that you've seen kind of animating the Republican Party base over the last decade or so, I think, is a reaction to that. It's a reaction to the fact that voters felt that the people they were electing uh, weren't really representing them and weren't passing laws, making policies that improve their lives substantially. Let's just stay, Jeremy, on the topic of the, the conditions that have led to the, the rise of populism on the right before we get into uh, some of the consequences that you outlined in the book. Research tells us that polarization is a bipartisan phenomenon. In fact, there's some evidence that the political left has moved further in recent decades than the political right. To what extent are these developments in the Republican Party, in your view, a reaction to ideological shifts on the left? And, you know, in other words, how much of this is a dialogue between the two major political parties in the United States? I think what you're describing there has accelerated tremendously over the last four or five years. I think that you had Republicans who weren't comfortable 
Donald Trump didn't like his style, didn't like him personally, become more comfortable with him because they were so disenchanted with what they were seeing coming out of the Democratic Party that it, it gave them an excuse, um, an, an excuse to go along with, with Trump and to excuse away his bad behavior and his, his, his recklessness, his impulsiveness. Um, so they could kind of look the other way as long as they could say to themselves, okay, well, but the left is actually worse. That idea, I think, brought around a lot of Republicans who were more of the establishment mold. I think you really saw this happen uh, around the time of the Brett Kavanaugh confirmation in the Supreme uh, in, in the Senate uh, when he was confirmed to the Supreme Court after the Democrats tried to block him when sexual misconduct allegations against him surfaced. I think there was a real sense among establishment Republicans that Democrats took that too far. Um, now, not getting into you know the, the, the merits of that argument or the, you know, the merits of the, the, the Republican stance on that issue, you have to acknowledge that that was a very powerful sentiment uh, among a lot of these folks. And it's what drove them into Donald Trump's arms. Another factor that the book uh, highlights, of course, is the role of media. I'm reminded of, of George Will's observation that Fox News has proven to be good for journalism in the sense that it created new opportunities for journalists but bad for the conservative movement and conservative ideas. What's the role of the right-wing media ecosystem in your story? It's it's a really unique phenomenon, right? There's nothing like it on the political left in the United States. I mean, uh, conservatives would say, well, they don't need their own media because they're beholden to uh, uh, the the mainstream media, right? The the, the mainstream media dictates the Democratic Party platform and all that. Now, I obviously reject that. um, And I think there's plenty of evidence showing that that is, in fact, not the case. But what you had happen, not just with the development of Fox News, but the rise of uh, figures and uh, websites like Andrew Breitbart and Breitbart.com was an outlet for people who really, really rejected the establishments of both political parties. And in some cases, even hated the Republican Party leadership more than they hated the Democratic Party leadership, if that makes sense. So what, what, it, was, it was very interesting in, in a number of ways. But I think one of the, the things that my book uncovers is that those conservative media stars and and, and activists, if you want to call them that, um, the bright parts of the world, were actually doing what they accused the mainstream media of doing along all along, but the mainstream media wasn't actually doing. And by that, I mean, Breitbart, Steve Bannon, these, the reporters and editors who worked and continue to work for outlets like Breitbart were actively colluding with the Trump campaign and with, with senior officials in the Republican Party over campaign strategy, over tactics, uh, over policy. Um, and, and that level of coordination, you just don't see it happening um, anywhere else like it does on the right. One final question, Jeremy, about the contributing factors behind the rise of right-wing populism. How much of, in your mind, is actually a a kind of top-down effort led by intellectuals and activists such as Peter Thiel versus a more bottom-up exercise or expression of, of the kind of political insurgency that the book's title aims to capture? So I think it's more like the, you know, the billionaire activists saw the kind of raw energy that you 
see building with the Tea Party, and they saw a way to to organize that. I think that anger was very, very real and very, very ripe uh, for the kind of, of organization um, that you saw. The kind of uh, uh, instead of grassroots, it would be called or criticized as grass tops. I'm not sure that that, that that's entirely the case. Um, that it was was organized top down, um, but you know it didn't. It wasn't manufactured. I guess is what I'm trying to say. Like this this grievance and this this notion that government wasn't working for ordinary folks was was legitimate. It was real, and um, I think some of the forces around Donald Trump that shaped it, exploited it, and 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 took it to to, to places that uh, were very ugly and very dark. But that anger came from somewhere, um, and it and it and it wasn't it wasn't manufactured by the Koch brothers. You're one click away from getting access to all the Hub's best analysis and insights. Go to our website www.thehub.ca and sign up for our daily email newsletter per diem. Each morning at seven a.m. Eastern, in your inbox, you'll receive the cutting edge thinking and analysis of our smartest contributors all curated for you based on the issues and ideas that are moving the public conversation. Sign up now free of charge at www.thehub.ca. Now back to our program. As an outside observer, one thing that really struck me about the 2015-2016 Republican primary is how it became clear that most elected Republicans, including party leaders like Paul Ryan and Mitch McConnell, seemed to basically misunderstand what motivated their core voters. Um, there, was a, there was a presumption, for instance, that Republican voters were more supportive of conservative economic orthodoxy than they were. What do you think contributed to the alienation between Republican politicians and their own voters? I think you hit the nail on the head right there. Um, it, it, it was people saw once Trump put it into you know, a framework that was quite easy to understand and exploited people's emotions um, and resentments that the standard fair Republican economics wasn't working for the average person in the United States. Like it's this idea of, you know, you, you cut your way, you, 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 the way to prosperity is through tax cuts and deregulation. You know, they saw um, corporations and, and chief executives like, like Mitt Romney getting wealthier and wealthier um, but then they saw in their own communities that those benefits weren't trickling down, um, to borrow the, uh, the famous phrase uh, from, from the Reagan era. Uh, and that, that, that kind of summed up and captured what Republican economic policies was that, you know, what's good for the people at the top would trickle down to the people closer to the bottom. Um, and Trump said very plainly, like, these corporations aren't working for you, they're not helping you. And his campaign rhetoric, of course, is very different from how he governed. Um, and I want to I want to be very clear about that. But it was a very it was, it was a very powerful argument to be making for people who still felt that they hadn't come out of the other end of, of, of the Great Recession. Let me pick up that point, Jeremy. If politicians like Ryan and McConnell had lost touch with Republican voters, Trump, by contrast, seemed to have something of an innate ability to know how to perfectly press their pressure points. What do you attribute that to? Uh, how could a political neophyte better understand the kind of impulses and interests and concerns of Republican voters better than longstanding Republican politicians. So despite 
the way that he lived, you know, his lifestyle, um, the, 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 the millions and millions of dollars that he made um, as, a, as a businessman and as a reality television show star, Donald Trump's sensibilities were always more blue collar than they were elite. Um, he kind of identified with that, you know, Archie Bunker type grievance uh, that, that uh, as, as, as one person told me, uh, who worked for him? He's kind of Archie Bunker with money. Roger Ailes, the the chairman of uh, of Fox News, um, I described this in, in the book, um, which I I unearthed this like goldmine of clip uh, of of Roger Ailes' old talk shows and where he, in which he interviewed people he thought were newsmakers and celebrities, and Donald Trump was one of them. And this is back in 1995. And Donald Trump was a 49-year-old real estate developer who you know, didn't have a TV show or anything like that. And, and one of Ailes' questions to him is, how is it that like these average you know, working Joes on the street look at you and say, hey, Donald, way to go. You know, we, 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 we love you, Donald. And Trump says, well, it's, I think it's because the, the rich people, they're the ones that hate me. And I thought that was really insightful way to see his appeal right he recognized that about himself that people were drawn to him not necessarily because of what they liked about him although that's true they were all they, they were drawn to him because of who they perceived his enemies to be who who hated him right and he had the right enemies he uh, you know he alienated a lot of elites and i think people identified with that you observe, Jeremy, that notwithstanding his ability to speak to these issues that were animating Republican voters, his record in office is at best mixed in terms of directly addressing their issues and concerns. And in fact, in various areas, as you alluded, he ended up uh, advancing a policy agenda that broadly resembled a conventional Republican one. What do you attribute the kind of extraordinary durability of Donald Trump's support amongst core Republican voters through his presidency and now into his post-presidency? So your question reminds me of, of an exchange that I had with a voter in 2018. This, this, I went to this bar in Wisconsin and I was interviewing people about the American politics um, and kind of what they thought about Trump and his leadership. And it, it was the first time that I realized that, that people's perceptions of how well they were doing and and how affected they were by Trump's policies didn't line up with reality. Um, this, this guy told me you know, he was he was glad that he felt the tax cuts uh, that Trump uh, signed into law really, really helped him. Um, and he felt great about it. And, and, you know, when I asked him to kind of quantify that, it was basically that he was able to um, uh, buy an extra pack of cigarettes every month and, and have a, an extra tank of gas um, for his boat. You know, and, and, and this is like, you know, a one time thing. I mean, these tax cuts did not, uh, it, it was very short lived, um, the kind of jolt that people saw from it financially. So I think it's more that he is the type of politician, who, his followers are so invested in him that they need him to succeed, even if they aren't necessarily benefiting from what he's done in office. I think a lot of it, I think, I think a lot of what people felt about his presidency, people who supported him at least, was, was, was through the prism of, well, you know, the, the Democrats and the left and the mainstream media, they hate him so much, I want him to succeed. And so it really distorted, I think, the way a lot of people saw his success. Let me just ask you a, a penultimate question. One gets the sense that the outcome of 
the experience documented in the book is that it's destabilized mainstream Republican politicians. They now seem to be overcorrecting, as we've seen in the Ohio Senate primary, for instance. Do you think there's a potential lane for a more conventional conservative in current Republican politics? Or are people like J.D. Vance actually reading the political marketplace correctly? I think they are reading the political marketplace correctly. The question is whether or not the voters will buy it. I think it would, with, a, with a guy like J.D. Vance, it's probably a pretty hard sell, um, given his, his background um, and the fact that he is, is, is on record as being so openly critical of Trump. Um, so people, you know, they, they can smell a phony. And I think, you know, it's certainly uh, J.D. Vance's opponents are trying to portray him that way. Um, and it's a, it's a potent line of attack. I think the short-term answer to your question about whether or not a more traditional Republican conservative can can appeal uh, to Republican voters is, you know, it depends. Like in Virginia, Glenn Youngkin was that type of candidate, but that's very unique, right? So I think these are kind of one-off situations. And, and I wouldn't expect to see for Glenn, Youngkin's, um, Glenn Youngkin become a template uh, for any type of Republican leader out there. I think the only way that you get a more conventional Republican is when Republican voters decide that's what they want. And by and large, right now, it's not what they want. And until the leaders of the Republican Party, the elected officials in Washington, see that, the, that that's what the voters want, that they're rejecting the kind of, you know, the, the, the crassness um, and the, the, the anger of Trumpism, um, they will continue to parrot it and they will continue to, to pay homage to him because they are so afraid of their voters that doing anything that, that can be seen as, as, as hostile to Trump or in opposition to him is just not someplace the average Republican elected official wants to go right now. And maybe just a final question, looking ahead, these political conditions that you've just described, you know, seem to be with us for the foreseeable future. One can argue that the pandemic has, has only served to exacerbate them. Is there a future for a Lynn Cheney conservatism in the world of Republican politics? Or is the Republican Party today a more of a populist party than it is a conservative party? I think it's the latter. It is far more populist than it is traditionally conservative. I mean, Liz Cheney-style Republicanism for the moment, um, is on ice because I think right now American politics is, is, is so responsive to the emotional or the intellectual that the old adage, um, you know, the, the Republicans fall in line, Democrats fall in love has been flipped around. And it's the Republicans now who have fallen in love with Donald Trump and that style of pugilistic politics. Um, and it's fun for a lot of them. Like, like it, it, that, that's something that really stuck with me in the 2020 race was seeing like how much a lot of these Republicans, um, you know, whether it was someone like Ron DeSantis or, or, or Marco Rubio, you know, like it, it, they enjoyed the political combat and, and to a certain extent, and, and this isn't true for all, all, all these guys, but they seem to enjoy the mean spiritedness of Trumpism. And that is, is, is far more galvanizing for people than a foreign policy paper um, or a tax cut. Well, the book is Insurgency, How Republicans Lost Their Party and Got Everything They Ever Wanted. New York Times political reporter Jeremy Peters, thanks so much for joining us today at Hub Dialogues. 
Okay. Thanks again. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Hub Dialogues, brought to you by The Hub, Canada's leading source for analysis and insights on public policy. We hope that you enjoyed this episode. Maybe it expanded your horizons, opened your mind to some new thinking and ideas. Please don't forget to share this episode with your friends and family. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a rating and review. That would be greatly appreciated. I'm the Hub's Executive Director, Rudyard Griffiths. The host of today's program was Sean Spear, the Hub's Editor-at-Large. This episode was produced by Amal Atar Guzman. Our audio producers are Alex Glutch and David Mata. Thanks for listening.